let's talk about uh, one of the recent outages uh, like uh, wanna cry right while there is this his traditional data breaches which would take months to detect and uh, the impacts are in millions of dollars like one month study says uh, 3.62 million for each data breach and there are hundreds of data breaches are occurring and thousands of breaches occurring but from that point zero to it took only 2 hours to spread across the enterprise Welcome to another episode of Pioneers of Possible, the show that connects you with the futurists, leaders, dreamers and builders who have reshaped what's possible in the worlds of business and technology. I'm Des Blanchfield, your host and fellow technologist. And today I have the pleasure of having Chandra Pulamarasetti in the studio with me. Hi Chandra, how are you? Hi Des, thank you. I'm doing great and uh, how's it going with you? Yeah, it's going great. Now, just for folks listening in, I should explain that uh, yet again, I have a guest from the other side of the planet with me. I'm here in Sydney at an early 11 o'clock at night, and it's dark and it's very warm. We're on the end of a day that was about 35 degrees Celsius. But you're in uh, Bangalore in India, uh, where it's, I think you said it was about 10 degrees, and it's about 5 p.m. in the afternoon. Is that correct? That's right. It's 5 p.m. on a cold, wintry day for Bangalore. 10 degrees is cold. and uh it's just uh getting getting to nightmare right now excellent well thank you so much for making time to catch up with me now just to quickly introduce you uh Chandra so you're the vice president and you kind of wear a couple of hats from what I understand you're the vice president of both the resiliency services strategy part of uh GDS as well as the resiliency orchestration software part of uh the service delivery Uh, for folk who haven't quite uh, come across you yet or met you, could you maybe just uh, introduce yourself briefly and just uh, give us a quick uh, outline of what those two job titles or roles actually are? Resiliency Services is the uh, arm within IBM, which is uh, uh, handling uh, business continuity and recovery aspects for our customers worldwide. So this is a global business unit for IBM across the world. and it's part of uh, our infrastructure services unit called global technology services and we are a very sizable business multi billion dollar business and uh, we handle um, thousands of customers uh, business continuity and recovery and so i lead the strategy global strategy for this uh, resiliency services in ensuring that we have the best of breed solutions and technologies uh, and processes for the customers uh, as they are digitizing their businesses and the second part is that ibm uh, um, the, the resiliency services is leading a lot of its services uh, with uh, uh, a, a software offering that we have called resiliency orchestration which is essentially transforming the business continuity dr for customers through a technology uh, so that the customers demanding uh, uh, recovery objectives can be met through this uh, technology and this used to be a company called Sinovi that uh, i had co-founded and was heading as a ceo which ibm acquired so i continue to handle that business to within resiliency services maybe we can just take a, a bit of a, a step back and just a little bit of insight into you personally if we can uh, we were talking earlier on and uh, i was really keen to get you just to share some insight around uh, some of your early uh, influences Uh, you mentioned that uh, very early on your dad or your father was actually a, a very strong influence to you and gave you a lot of drive to uh, uh I think you mentioned he came from a farming background that he really wanted you to get a solid education and and get out and do great things in the world and that I think you mentioned a lot of kids in the village that you grew up in didn't often get that opportunity to get an education and I think uh, I made a note that you, you said that essentially your father drove you to kind of aim for that sort of leadership 
uh, uh, you know, uh, focus and get out and, and do great things. I'd love to hear a bit of the insight and kind of how that drove your, your you know, outlook to life in general and, and kind of the influence your dad had on you. I, I came from a, 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 a humble village uh, in southern India. And um, my father with a farming background and the entire family, they would farm. But then he was a very, very hardworking. And I would say he was the visionary type. And uh, uh, he worked to get schooling uh, into the village. Uh, uh, the village had only elementary school, so he worked as a leadership. So he would go out and then work with a lot of people to get some. Finally, he managed to get a higher school for the uh, village. Then uh, uh, he always wanted... Uh, all of us uh, to be educated because he had seen, um, I guess I don't know where he got his vision, uh, that you know, he had seen that you know, high education means you know you can actually grow up and then learn a lot in life. So he worked He worked quite a bit for us, I must say. And then I used to watch him that morning 7, he used to, his drill used to be morning 7 to night 11. And uh, um, that's the kind of hard work. He was doing multiple jobs, one side farming, another side used to go out and then work in some uh, as an employee in another company there. Uh, uh, so so that that gave a strong impression to me that uh, um, when nobody around me was actually getting educated like this, but here is someone pushing us to uh, do his best, to give us the best. So I said, yes, so then I can at the least take that opportunity and uh, uh, learn maximum. And so studies and then working hard came naturally to me. Um, and and uh, I was able to go into some of the best schools run by the state uh, in India and uh, through some competitive exams. But uh, uh, I just, I think, uh, with his push and uh, effort, he created right opportunities and then really worked hard and studied uh, well in my childhood. Um, as a result, I was able to get into some good colleges. And uh, um, with, with, I guess with his background, of uh, he he was a leader and he was uh, also like the president for the village so he was doing some of those roles as a leadership role so that impacted me i guess in some way so i wanted in the childhood to actually uh, uh, become in in india what we call a collector or an ias officer indian administrative officer uh, by doing competitive exams but somewhere along um, as i was getting close to my college uh, um, this whole computer industry revolutionized coming up. This is uh, in early, um, late 80s. So when this whole uh, computer industry was coming to India and then booming, so somebody advised that, you know, hey, this may be a good thing for you. And I was fascinated. Uh, I guess I had that uh, zine to go off and then do this technology. So I was fascinated. And then I just happened to have taken a computer science branch in my uh, college. And that sort of set and uh, my pace in, and then I really enjoyed, ever since I came into the computer programming, to uh, uh, do a lot of innovation, technology, development, research, and then thoroughly enjoyed for my first part of the career. But however, this management interest started setting in as I was doing about 10 years into my career, then uh, I started thinking, okay, so I guess I need to, I wanted to go into management. And one thing led to the other, and then I founded a company, and then I'm here in IBM uh, doing uh, managing a business. I love hearing those backgrounds because I think uh, you know there's been a couple of generations of late. Uh, you know, I I've just turned fifty, so I'm old enough to kind of be able to talk about this stuff and reminisce. But uh, there have been a couple of generations, in my view, that often forget where they've come from, or they don't always look back and sort of you know recognize some of the uh, foundational and, and supportive and in, inspirational 
drivers in their lives and certainly our families and, and in my case uh, you know friends of the family inspired me to go and do great things you also did a bs in computer science uh tell us about uh, that experience because i believe you went on to then uh, co-author about five patents from memory yeah so so this this institute where i studied was one of the premier uh, institutes and it has an education modeled after uh, some of the uh, western universities popular western universities and so it had a very, very cosmopolitan culture, open environment, and best of the labs. So um, I was, I remember, you know, I was actually doing deep programming in uh, um, the, the Motorola architectures and x86 architectures, uh, assembly programming and stuff, right? We were doing quite deeply in uh, those days. And I think that was a lot of interest. Uh, that uh, I built a lot of interest into the computer science. It naturally came to me. And uh, from there, I went on to work um, with uh, Wipro uh, Technology Systems as an initial uh, job. And then from there, I went to the United States uh, to work for Sequent. And um, I spent a lot of time at Sequent where uh, I built some of the finest and best uh, um, semantic multiprocessing and uh, non-uniform memory access NUMA systems. Uh, you said you were there too at uh, DES. Uh, I guess we, know we never worked together. I guess we never interacted together, but... Uh, it was a great company to uh, a, a technologist to um, write stuff or develop stuff or a technology or, or, or someone to go and then create a solution because we were solving most complex problems those days for some of the largest companies in the world, right? Absolutely, and and yes, uh, when we were talking earlier, I <clears throat> I made a note that I'd uh, seen uh, had read that you were both at uh, Sequent and Sun Microsystems. I think uh, you were at Sequent somewhere around about the uh, early to mid nineties, nineteen five, ninety six era, uh, and then probably later Sun. But um, um, tell us about the transition from Sequent to sort of Sun, and then and then beyond uh, to founding Sanobi. Yeah, so so with a solid background at uh, uh, building a lot of these uh, large scale, uh, uh, solving complex problems and technology, um, and uh, in multi process systems. So. I got the opportunity to work um, at Sun and then at a company called Auspex, uh, where it was pioneering NAS file servers. So I did work in those uh, two companies uh, briefly for an year each. And uh, uh, then I had this opportunity through some of my friends, uh, founded a company in, uh, in the storage industry to offer storage uh, uh, as a service and backup as a service. This was all back in 2000. Wow. Um, this this was uh, when the Exodus data center model was uh, just uh, taken shape, and uh, um, we were uh, we built large scale mm, solutions and tools to manage. Uh, um, I remember uh, about like twenty five hundred terabytes of data in uh, two thousand uh, across about six hundred customers. These were several. Dot coms as well as some medium sized companies who had wheeled in their servers into the external data centers, and we would serve with uh, some of our technology solutions that we put in those data centers. So I was in this small in this company, uh, which raised a lot of capital in those days. But I had joined that as an employee one. Uh, I did this for about three years, and um, that sort of built a lot of uh, solutioning experience for me from an hardcore technologist moved in to build the solutioning where you are uh, managing that kind of terabytes of backup through uh, tools like Veritas and uh, third-party backups with storage tech libraries and all that those days. And you had to have some management software to simplify and uh, get some insights and then ability to very effectively utilize the resources that we were 
the common resources which were used to manage these uh, 600 customers across the board. So, so that's that's the time where uh, we developed tools, uh, and uh, that is also the time we found that DR as a service, uh, and we were just beginning to do DR for a couple of customers. They said, yes, you're doing backups, you're doing uh, uh, storage and demand, because for storage, we had these uh, high-end Hitachi systems. And they said, you got Hitachi boxes across data centers, so why don't you offer us DR as a service by connecting them with replications? So we started that service, and then we realized that uh, the DR space is a void. There is no, there is a gap. There is no management software. You have management software for automating backup. You have management software for managing heterogeneous storage, heterogeneous networks, but nothing for DR. So the idea of building a, a single console central orchestration for DR process was born at our previous company. And uh, so the rest was that, uh, so we, we came out of the previous company and uh, uh, it took us about a couple of years to think through uh, about this and then understand the space better. And then we started uh, on an idea to build a management software back in 2005 and six. Now, it uh, took us a second round. So uh, first few years, uh, we were building a, a limited product around databases to recover database systems very quickly. And uh, by 2009-10, we realized that it is uh, a difficult proposition to really expand on. And uh, that's when uh, um, we uh, got new investors and where we extended the product horizon to what it is today called uh, enterprise uh, resiliency orchestration software, which is cutting across all kinds of storage, all kinds of databases, um, all kinds of applications and provides a single console view. So it is a long journey for uh, us uh, as a Synovi, but then uh, we are very feel proud that you know, we are as a pioneer and then we're glad to be part of IBM today and then take, take the technology to massively to large scale customers across the world. I'd like to transition now if we can into the whole topic of cyber resilience because I think that's very much top of mind for a lot of people. I'd love to get your insight around that space. I know there was a research by Ponemon uh, this year, 2017, around the cost of a data breach, for example. They, they produced a study and they were saying that for the average company, uh, for for a nominal data breach, the cost was something in the order of like you know three point six million US dollars or something, and some amazing stats. You know something like sixty eight percent of um, folk uh, uh, interviewed or or in the study uh, uh, indicated the lack of ability to remain resilient uh, in the wake of an attack. What I'd love to do is maybe just get some insight from you as to you know what does it actually mean to be cyber resilient? What are some of the things that they should have top of mind that you're seeing every day, given that you are literally on the bleeding edge of the space? Uh, absolutely, uh, there's. I think this is so important. And then let me. I think you alluded that uh, a little bit by talking about Poneman study, right? Um, but let's let's talk about uh, one of the recent uh, um, outages, uh, like uh, WannaCry, right? So now, while there is this his traditional data breaches, which would take months to detect, and uh, the impacts are in millions of dollars, like Poneman study says, uh, 3.62 million for each data breach. And there are hundreds of data breaches are occurring and thousands of breaches occurring. But you look at WannaCry, what happened? From their point zero to, it took only two hours to spread across the enterprise. And uh, there are various studies, but one study estimates the data loss, uh, the quantification was about $4 billion in a WannaCry uh, across the, for the, to the businesses. So from a traditional uh, uh, data breaches, now you have these kind of rapid attacks, what you call, which are 
proliferating so quickly in minutes, in hours, right? And so, uh, so that's why cyber resiliency. And then, and, and we all have seen uh, a recent outage in Equifax, and and uh, where it is uh, now not only a business loss, but an it is impact going into the. Uh, threatening the jobs of uh, the CXOs and uh, board members, right? So the impact is significant. And cyber resilience, resiliency traditionally was talking about, I can have an occasional outage. It could be manual failures, software failures, hardware issues, or uh, natural disasters, right? But then now cyber, but those are rare to occur, few to occur. But cyber resiliency, where it is not in your control, it is something outside the organization happening, right? And as a result, you want to be really, really prepared for it. And what does cyber resiliency mean? Historically, when you were talking of security and you're talking of resiliency, security was mostly around prevent to, proactively identify any uh, uh, attacks of uh, access attacks, compliance issues, or any things that are coming onto the enterprise uh, data steal, data theft kind of uh, thing. So it is about preventive model of uh, security solutions are about identifying vulnerabilities early on. Resiliency was focusing and selling, and then the customers are deploying recovery solutions if there is an outage. Okay. Now, cyber resiliency has to see that these two have to come together. Your security solutions, ability to lead, uh, ability to withstand ability to detect and proactively protect organization from any attacks is uh, uh, all the security solutions had to be taken. And in case there are attacks that uh, uh, go through the defense cycle, defense circle, and then come in and then you corrupt your infrastructure or corrupt your data, then you have to have a solid uh, resilient uh, uh, system so that you can recover your systems fairly quickly. So a cyber resiliency is a broader umbrella where you are talking of uh, uh, security solutions, you're talking of resilient to, to be able to recover faster. Then you're also talking about uh, enterprise risk and how you're able to handle the risks pretty quickly overall as a business process level risks. So cyber resiliency is covering all three areas. And uh, at IBM, we have uh, looked at this uh, so important. I mean, in some cases, customers or CAOs are coming to us and saying, IBM, you are an advisor, so we need you to assist us in then telling us what is right and not right. And so we have a very well devised, a comprehensive cyber resiliency life cycle, which spans all these three uh, elements. And then uh, 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 which a life cycle that is so comprehensive that uh, we look at and then identify any gaps that you have in across the board and then provide a very integrated, effective solution so that the organization is uh, resilient from uh, cyber, these cyber attacks. And I guess things get very, very uh, difficult when, you know, I mean, it's all well and good to have a great technology stack, uh, but you were talking about some of the business challenges. I mean, uh, you know, over the last decade, we've seen frameworks like the uh, EU-US Data Shield uh, become a thing. Uh, and that got even more complex when the Swiss decided they wanted to add more to it. So we ended up with a sort of, EU, US, Swiss data shield, uh, and on a win. And then, you know, we've got GDPR coming up next year, which is just, to me, it's like this freight train of a Y2K moment, which I don't think anyone's even fully comprehended myself. Uh, we've got other big challenges. I mean, in Australia, for example, since 1918 or even later and, and, and you know, subsequently updated, we've had a very stringent privacy act uh, around control of data such that a lot of Australian state and federal government agencies and certainly large enterprises can't use 
uh, cloud platforms because they don't comply to Australia's privacy laws. So we can't put it into a certain cloud provider if there's any risk that the data is going to move offshore. Uh, it's actually illegal. It's a jailable offence. But we've also got some other challenges I've seen with, with um, both uh, government and enterprise uh, across multiple countries. That You know, GDPR is big and challenging. But even things like the Internet of Things, you know, when we think about the IoT, um, most countries don't actually have a law that specifically pertains to IoT, you know, whether it's um, consumer protection, data protection, basic criminal law, civil liability, uh, just basic standards, tax law, um, intellectual property, uh, environmental, insurance, uh, business law, certifications, contracts, all those components of law, uh, things like the Internet of Things that we're rushing at with this data everywhere. And most, most, if not all, nations don't specifically have law that pertains to that. So companies are having to think about, well, how do we now put frameworks in place that account for that? Are you seeing um, organizations come to you now and say, look, this is so big we can't get our arms around it. We, we not only want you to, to resolve the, the resilience challenge from a technology point of view, but what can you do strategically for us? How do we, in plain speak from the boardroom down, just get a strategy and a, and a roadmap in place so that we can even just get a language and a vocab to talk about it because it's a very big challenge. Yes, I think this is, uh, uh, we, 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 you know, um, IBM is uh, uh, managing the uh, most of the world's largest businesses, right? And so naturally we, we are managing entire IT for several customers and then uh, organizations. So definitely customers are relying on us uh, significantly and it is a very strategic decision, uh, strategic solution, very very strategic with respect to uh, uh, how do you manage uh, the uh, risks, uh, how do you manage the technology failures, how do you manage the application uh, intrusions, and uh, definitely how do you manage the recovery. So there are various angles to it. And so uh, what we have is a, a very very integrated. Uh, 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 we devised a very integrated consulting uh, um, approach, a consultative approach to the customers who want an advisory uh, uh, advisory role for us. So where we'll go through a rapid consultancy for the customers and be able to point out and then uh, give them a roadmap. Because there is there there are multiple dimensions to this, right? And you have you have a lot of uh, at an infrastructure level, you have these uh, preventive technologies you are talking at it. Then you have a rapid recovery capabilities that you want to deploy. Then, uh, then you're looking at uh, um, uh, Safe Harbor, which is a, like a new initiative in the industry, uh, from a banking industry, where uh, you're saying that you know, you've got to have an air gap replication copy. That means you've got to have a data copy, which is outside your data centers, located in a, a, a completely third-party location, and it has to be cut off from the network in a safe place so that... Uh, in case something happens to the data, you're able to recover from it because there is that roadmap that you have to feed into. And, and then uh, definitely you have the operational risks uh, covering all of this. So, so the, we, we have a consultative model using which we provide the customers a complete 360-degree view uh, covering the security, covering the networking, covering the resiliency, and then covering the business uh, uh, risks and all that provided. So this is a, a big boardroom topic and then we are constantly helping our customers uh, day in and day out. As we come up to sort of a half an hour, I'd love to, to, as I mentioned earlier on, I'd love to hand you a virtual crystal ball and get you to gaze into it for me if you could because I'm really keen to get your view of kind of what's coming up in the next either 12 to 18 months or three to five years depending on how far you're comfortable looking forward in the crystal ball. 
Uh, where are we going to be in a year or two or a couple of years in this space? And, and what can we expect to sort of see coming over the horizon? Um, I think I would like to address that in a couple of ways. Uh, there's, uh, um, one is, I think, on the technology side, uh, I, I, I really think that uh, this, this whole journey into cloud and cognitive, they are going to play a big role in this whole uh, resiliency. The, the cloud and cognitive, are, cloud is changing the shape of resiliency significantly. Um, because cloud is trying to define the singular unified system across the world, and it is absorbing a lot of resiliency components into it. So from the customer side, they're all going into the backend into a monolithic large system. Uh, and, and a lot of resiliency is moving towards uh, what we call, it, it, it becomes simply a workload migration. You know, when your workloads migrate from one cloud to another or one data center to another, one location to another, the resiliency underneath has to be naturally, automatically managed. Chandra, thank you so much for making time uh, available uh, at the end of your busy day uh, there in Bangalore and in India. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to get to uh, learn a bit more about you personally and also get some insights into your professional uh, background and career and what you're doing around resilience. It's been great to uh, just to get to know you and to learn about your topic. Des, uh, Des, thank you so very much for your time and interest in this, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Great to know that you are at, uh, we both worked at some companies in the past, and uh, absolutely, I look forward to uh, this and many more discussions go forward. Thank you. Hi there, this is Des. Thanks for tuning into my Pioneers of Possible podcast series. I trust you've had as much fun listening to this episode as I had producing it for you. Now, before you go, I have an exciting exclusive offer to share with each and every one of you. You've heard me talking with IBM's best and brightest right here in my podcasts. Now you get to talk with them in person yourself. And here's how. IBM have given me an exclusive offer to give you, my wonderful followers and listeners, a free one-on-one -on -one session via phone with an experienced IBM expert. To book your call with an IBM expert, simply click on the expert advice link in the show description. And be sure to let me know how your IBM expert session goes by tagging me in a tweet with your feedback. Thanks again for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of the series. And I'll look forward to talking with you on Twitter soon.